I think this is a very interesting way that this is, I'm starting to see the show as being serialized and arc-based, you know, again, very different in structure from Next Generation now. Well, don't get too excited. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I I won't, I I, I mean, I'm going to assume that, you know, we're doing, so this is part one and two of what I assume is a three or maybe even four part episode. But, you know, they're going to resolve this storyline eventually, correct? Yeah, yeah. They will resolve yeah. this storyline. It will end. Like, it's not going to last the whole season. It's not going to be this kind of a structure. But still, that they are doing it as three episodes, which are very strongly linked and, you know... This, you know, structurally, they aren't so much as, a, you know, we've seen plenty of two-parters in Next Generation, and that was, you know, leading to a cliffhanger and ending. This is, I don't know, they're, they're, these two episodes didn't seem so much as a plot as it, as it was hanging up a bunch of stuff, and now everything's about to fall down in the third episode. That That's um, pretty accurate. I mean, well, well let me ask yeah. you this, first of all. Did you think that this was going to be resolved in the second episode? I mean, did you think this was just a, a regular two-parter? I, I, I wasn't sure, but kind of figured, yeah, you know, they're not, or, you know, maybe they'll keep Kira away for a few episodes, and that, you know, would be, you know, what happened, and, but... You, you, you know, that, that that they would make it such direct, you know, that they would tie the episodes so directly to each other. No, I didn't expect that. I thought it would be more just setting up things for a bunch of the season, but not so serialized, which I don't know. I, I liked that. This, these were a very tense two episodes. Basically, every I, I mean, I loved them. They were everything that's happening is just kind of ratcheting it, ratcheting it up where it leads to is a very strong moment for the series well i think it's i think it's i think it's an interesting couple of episodes for a few reasons i think number one it's structurally very different from anything that star trek has done before now maybe in 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 not not really in scope but but kind of in you know it's it's just they've done two parters before now they're expanding it to three parts you know will they do this again who knows but I think that's remarkable just for that reason alone. It's the show sort of starting to edge around serialization. And I think that, you know, from everything that we've talked about with The Next Generation, uh, you know, over the past um, 60 episodes or whatever the hell it was of Trek about when we ended the, the, the series, that, you know, The Next Generation doesn't get its due for the serialization that it did do. And it was very, very quiet serialization. They sort of mentioned things here and there every once in a while, but it wasn't the sort of serialization that we're used to, certainly, in, in this era of television. It was more that there were a lot of sequels to things that, you know, again, y- you can see that they would mention a character or a character would show up. And, you know, as far as they knew for that time, it was done, you know, and then later a bunch of writers would say, hey, I remember that character. Let's see what she's up to this time, you know, and two seasons later but yeah here it's much more directly planned out well i think it's i think it's more planned out in a certain sense because there's there's an interesting thing about this this kind of second season of of deep space nine is that you know of course number one this is airing at the same time as the last episode of the next generation and so and they knew going into the seventh season of the next generation that that was going to be the last season and so deep space nine was being set up as something different from the next generation you know michael pillar 
uh, one of the little factoids about about this this uh, um, serial serialization at the beginning of the second season is that you know he he uh, gathered the writers and said, look, let's uh, let's change things up a little bit. You know, we've we've done a season of this show already. This is going to be about Deep Space Nine. Let's get away from the next generation. Let's get away. Let's get away from having yeah. next generation characters and next generation type storylines. So the second season is already being set up behind the scenes as something that's going to be a bit different from the first season. And you know, if you look at, because I think that that you know, uh, uh, the homecoming really works as almost a continuation of in the hands of the prophets in a, in a certain sense. You know, I think that if this, yeah. you know, if Deep Space Nine had been made 20 years later, that would have been a much more explicit link. But I think that, that the, the first season, and we talked a little bit about this last week is that the first season of Deep Space Nine was really kind of slowly setting up some of the Bajoran stuff that's going on right now and kind of exploding the show never really forgot about Bajor, never really forgot about the, the prophets, never really forgot about the religion and the provisional government. But now it's all just coming to a head. And yeah, it probably will be resolved next episode or maybe the episode after that. But I don't think that it will be resolved as neatly or cleanly as it would have been in the next generation, perhaps. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, you could, you know, the first season was much more about establishing who these characters are, you know, some of the, you know, the first season was much more about what life is like on Deep Space Nine than it was on Bajor. Again, given that it's the title character of the show, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, now that they've done that and now that we have these strong, you know, at the very end of the last season, that starts to come very much into the forefront. And now, you know, these two, these episodes, this, you know, the circle in particular are very much about, you know, the Bajoran religion and what, a, you know, daily life is like at a Bajoran monastery, you know. Um, and we get a stronger sense, uh, you know, it, it. this episode makes, you know, I, I'm about to talk about the circle too, I guess it's, you know, that's another thing. It's very hard to talk about these as two discrete episodes. And I think that's fine. I mean, yeah. for this sort of thing, I think that works okay. And if you want to bring in topics from the next episode, that's okay. I mean, we, this can be structured any way we want. It's our podcast. Yes, it is. Um, as you said, you know, it seems almost a, you know, this is this is stemming very much from, uh, uh, um, what the hell is that? From the hands of the prophets. You know, we see we see Vedic wind scheming again in this episode. You know, yeah. and we see that that's very directly related to what's his name. Um, and his schemes, you know, they're, they're, you know, banding, they band together at the end of the circle, you know, and, you know, they're both, they're, they're both fairly schemy and fairly dangerous, but, you know, together they're probably going to get some shit done. And, well, I think the know, interesting thing is that, you know, we're not really sure to the degree to which, um, Vedic win is involved or not do you know what i mean like yeah no she, like you you know you get the sense she isn't involved right now but at this point you know at the point of the end of the episode when you know they have their and she's saying you know well the prophets are smiling on you you know and all that you know when he asks for her support yes now at that point they are going to be allies so you know their schemes have been independent so far you know they've only and frankly you know i'd say her schemes gain a lot more than 
his due because he's been more successful on his own than she has been. But yeah, but I think you know if you if you take a step back from this and you kind of look at the different shows and how they sort of approach this kind of thing, you know, you know, I remember way, you know way back I think in the third or fourth season of TNG when there was that episode, I believe it was The Hunted, where Picard at the end of the episode basically washed his hands of the entire problem and said, you know what, you this is your problem, you need to deal with it, and just left. Uh, and that was really the next, you know, I remember saying that was really the next generation kind of making its stake as a very different show, even from the original series where, you know, Kirk was very involved in fixing problems. He he felt it, it was, it was his moral duty to fix the problems of all of these yeah. different planets they were going with, going to. And now in the next generation, that is very much not the case. And Deep Space Nine seems to be going into the direction of not only is this not necessarily the Federation's problem, especially with the end of uh, the second episode, The Circle, where yeah. uh, Ensign Chakotay basically washes his hands of the entire situation and says, you know what, you need to get the hell out of there, uh, that not only are we going to see a society that's falling apart, but we're going to make it kind of uh, you know, one of our storylines, ongoing storylines in the show. And that's very different from you know, the other Star Treks as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it in here there is as much of a the Federation's trying to preserve itself in here. Like they they make it very clear that if Cisco and everybody is on this station, you know, they're pro there's you know a lot of people are going to get hurt. You know, this is the Federation retreating in a way, and we've never you know we've only really seen that with the Borg, who were the you know, and we know how dangerous the Borg were. We know you know how right it was for the Federation to be scared of the Borg, but. You know, here they are saying that, you know, th- this is the first we've really heard of the Prime Directive that I can think of in this show. And Yeah, I think it may have been mentioned once before. But, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's not... not come into play the way, again, even even original series, you know, even though it was kind of a vague concept, you know, to mean whatever, it still came up fairly often. And it was, you know, one of the points of the next generation was dealing with this issue of the Prime Directive and putting it in as many tests as it can you know and you know getting and you know here we are we're you know where the prime directive says what it seems to almost say the wrong thing like it it feels horrible for the federation to retreat from this to say the page or look you know this is your thing you know because i mean frankly at this point beige is saying that they don't really want the federation you know, around for this one, they're kicking the Federation out in a way, or they're making steps to. Well, I think and... it's, I think that's you know that's kind of the open question of the episode, of course, because yeah, one of the things that's happening is that there's a civil war going on, and so the Federation is basically saying, look, we don't want to get involved in this, and you know, rightly or wrongly, they don't get involved in civil wars of other planets, and that's fine. But I think that the, the real uh, there's a couple things going on here, and I think some of it is is very character based, and some of it is more world based. You know, I'm thinking back to that scene at the beginning of The Circle where you've got the Marx Brothers movie going on in Kira's quarters. And, you know, Odo is there and he's saying, look, you know, you have your own moral code. You don't really pay attention. You've never paid attention to Bajoran rules. You've never paid attention to Cardassian rules. And you've never paid attention to Federation rules. You know, you've got your own thing going on. And so which which in in that line, by the way, it does very you know, if we weren't quite clear why Odo respects Kira so much, it's right in there, you know, because, yeah. it's oh, you know, the same is about Odo. Odo, I guess, you know, it, it makes it very clear that Odo respects Kira because she's pretty much the only one who is the same as him on that score. Yeah, absolutely. 
But then, you know, and that kind of fed into what happened. You know, we'll talk about Lee Nollis and the rescue attempt and all yeah. of that stuff. But that kind of is 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 directly linked to, you know, Kira's decision to rescue Lee Nollis in, in the first episode, The Homecoming. You know, because, and that's kind of the interesting thing about the episode is that Cisco is being convinced by Kira and by Dax, frankly, and by everybody else that yeah. you've got that whole running joke about just give her the runabout already. Just yeah. let her do it, you know, that he's putting his beliefs about what Bajor needs above what Bajor itself wants because of yeah. course Kira went to the provisional government and said look I want to do this and you know ministers told her no and here's Cisco the federation commander who's saying okay fine go do it so he's well, already he's a... already starting to break the well not break yeah. the rules but bend the rules a little bit well, it's the kind of thing where i mean we don't realize at the time that the reason the ministers told Kira no was that you know, because they are, be, you know, as whatever Pre- President Evil makes it clear, um, you know, he doesn't want Lee on the on Bajor because that will be very disastrous to his plans, you know. And so, you know, he that that's why this rescue is not being officially authorized, of course. But um, it's kind of interesting, though, that that in a certain sense, the character of Lee Nollis is a MacGuffin because in yeah. the first episode, he's built out to be this, this, you know, heroic war veteran who is just a brilliant strategist and is going to come into Bajor and, you know, just clean house and make everything better. And, you know, as we see in the second episode, he's a paper tiger. He doesn't really, yeah, he doesn't really do anything. You know, he's just I'm, kind of there. I mean, he has a couple of good ideas, but I, I, I don't really get a sense that he's this brilliant strategist. He even says that, of course. Yeah, I mean, he makes it at one point, he, like when he says to go on the mission, he basically says like, look, I can take orders really well, you know, I'm going to be very good, you know, and, you know, that's the thing, you know, Lena Alice sees himself as a grunt and a very, probably a very good grunt, you know, he's probably, you know, if, if he's in, you know, with a good commander, you know, that he follows and that he respects and believes and he's going to do whatever they say. And he's awesome at that. And that's, you know, obviously that's a very important thing that you need when you're fighting a war, but he's not a commander. And, right. you know, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's interesting because this is something that the, the decision to rescue him, you know, we are, I mean, we we learned two episodes ago how horrible life in a Cardassian labor camp is. At this point, everybody on Deep Space Nine, when they hear, you know, that anybody is stuck in a Bajoran labor camp, they're going to want, you know, it's going to, it seems unabashedly the right thing to do to go in on this rescue mission. That's why, you know, that's why everybody seems to agree, you know, with them without thinking about it and why Cisco, you know, is very willing to, you know, decide that, you know, to authorize this because it's the right thing to do. And yet. Yeah. But I, but I, but I think that, that this is a decision that Cisco would not have made, uh, you know, even a few episodes ago, you know, I, I, that's fair. Yeah. And I think that, that he's already starting to realize that this is a very fluid situation. And sometimes, you know, the argument could be made that, he is directly interjecting the Federation and Starfleet into a Bajoran internal matter. And, you know, the Bajorans said no, and they shouldn't do this. And, of course, Cisco comes back and he says, all right, fine, go do it. Uh, there's an argument to be made, of course, that Cisco is playing both sides of the fence. Perhaps he's, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, but, it seems... You it know, seems... Uh, no, I would disagree because, 
It's not Bajorans who don't want Linas rescued. It's very clear that every if you asked any person on the street in Bajor, you know, would you like Linas to be rescued if he could be, you know, they would immediately say yes, you know, he you know, if if he's still alive, he needs It's not Bajor it's not Bajor who wants Linalis out of the way. It's this coup which True. is not and I, and so I would, you know, I, I think that highlights the degree to which Minister Jaro has become corrupted because he is willing to, again, whether or not Linalis is a great hero or not, the episode, the, the show makes it clear that the symbol, you know, the symbolism is more important to him, you know, uh, to to the Bajorans, you know, he he is willing to sell out that symbol in order for this power grab. Well. Yeah, I, I'm with you, but I think there's a couple of things there. I think number one, of course, is that at the beginning of of the homecoming, when Cisco agrees to let Kira go rescue Leonalis, mm. he doesn't know that yeah, Minister yeah, yeah. Jaro's involved, and so he, as far as he's concerned, the provisional government is saying no to this. You know, he doesn't know to the, the extent to which there's actually a coup going on, or they're trying to have a coup go on. So that's yeah, that's, that's the fair. that's the first point. I think the second point to make is that. Minister Jaro is an interesting character, but I think that's one of the episode's failings is that they don't really give him a clear motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. You know, Kira has a very clear motivation. She has a very clear moral code. I think Cisco's motivations make sense as well. And I think that especially considering the fact that there's there, there's a couple of really nice scenes between Cisco and Kira in both of these episodes. Yeah. And that really shows how far the relationship has come. I don't know that the episode really sells the idea that Minister Jara was doing this for the good of Bajor. I, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a certain degree to which he just seems like kind of a, a, a stock villain. And... I wish that the episodes had given him more of a clear motivation for what it is that he's doing. Maybe, maybe, well, maybe well, they will. You know, next yeah, week yeah, yeah. we don't know. But it, it, right now, as it stands, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, I guess a couple points is that one. You know, it is true. The um, you know, they they, they this is technically uh, an act of war. Uh, you know, it's it's an invasion of Cardassian territory. Yes, and they make it clear that you know, it, you know. Cardassia, I you you can you you can see when Galdacott is you know having his you know speech about you know unfortunately you know there was a person you know when we didn't know and you know we're right. so, you know you know it's very clear that there was that no you know nobody in the Cardassian government slept that night and that they all you know talked about you know do we go to war do do we not what is the you know and ultimately decided that letting this one go would be the most you know a thing but you know it was a very controversial night at that point but um you know they you know and and uh minister Drow does have that line like you know this was an act of war they declined the invitation like they were right. lucky too so yeah you know bejor does have there there could be legitimate mo- motives from the bejoran side to not do this because you know the Cardassians just could have easily been booking for this as the excuse to war. Yeah, and I guess it's it's kind of a weird thing though, of course, because you know Minister Jaro and the Circle seem to think that that if they kick the Federation out, the Cardassians are not going to come back, and that that's kind of a I think that's an assumption without much basis in reality. And I, you know the Cardassians have always been kind of on the the edges of the show so far, and. 
you know, it's a Cardassian who brings Lee Nollis's necklace to, you know, to, to, to Quark and then, and then Kira, you know, yeah. so what, how much of this is being set up in advance and how much of this is not, you know, I mean, the Cardassians may have wanted this to happen, you know, and maybe this oh. is another data point in their, in their attempt to get the Federation out, you know, I mean, it's possible that the Cardassians put all this in motion, you know, I think that <laughs> there, there, there's a very real sense. I mean, I remember you saying something about the Cardassians being, you know, competent Romulans. And to a certain degree, I think that's true. You know, this this has all the markings of that sort of like Byzantine Romulan plot that they love to do, which just does, you know falls apart at the end. It doesn't make any sense. But this one seems to be working so far. And so, well, you know, if if the goal was to get, you know, to, to what involvement that Cardassian set everything up, where they're just reacting very well to things. At this point, you know, everything is going very well for them. You know, they know that. They just need to bide their time a little bit more, you know, wait for the Cardassians to kill a bunch of each other. Sorry, wait for the Bajorans to kill a bunch of each other off. And then it's going to be, you know, after a civil war, they just need to waltz in. Yeah, yeah. And I think, but but that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, is that that naive on their part, though? I mean, do you think that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the Federation and Starfleet does not want to get involved in in a Bajoran civil war, once the civil war is over and if the Cardassians come back, you know, do you do you really think that the Bajoran government wouldn't ask the Federation to come back? I mean, it seems. Well, yeah. And that's what the uh, uh, the Federation guy that, you know, Cisco talks to basically says, like, look, because, you know, I mean, what does he say? Like, because Bajor isn't asking or Bajor is telling us to get out or this isn't, you know really d- directly effect- this is between you know Bajorans and Bajorans like we have no responsibility I mean he all but says that you know well if the Cardassians come in we'll probably have to come back right I mean I, I think they all realize that they can't get involved in this one because it is you know a prime directive violation it is you know according to the the more according to the moral code that the Federation set up for itself um to intervene in this conflict would be wrong, but you know, they know that when they're asked for help in a year, you know, they'll come back. Well, and frankly, I think that at the very end of the, of the second episode, the circle, when Cisco finds a loophole to stay in effect, you know, I don't, I don't really get a sense that Cisco thinks that the Bajorans are going to be that, hard to beat i mean you know i'm I'm not i'm not trying to be i'm not trying to be glib about it but i think that there's a real sense you know and i think that this is kind of subtext of the episode or maybe this is my own interpretation but cisco seems to respect the bajorans as far as it goes but he also seems to consider them kind of naive in a way and i think some of his decision to stay in on deep space nine at the end of the of the circle is his own stubbornness some of it is him learning from kira but i think some of it is a real sense that the bajorans on his like on his part that the bajorans don't know what they're really doing well it's tr- i th- i think that's actually a, a very I, I i i think that's very correct i mean number one a war is very different from a rebellion. You know, the, the, yeah. the Bajorans are really good at rebellion, but they aren't good at war. And, you know, they also, if they're dealing with the civil war, the country is not organized. You know, that's basically one gigantic Cardassian empire fighting. It's just going to fight one country after another, essentially until, and it, you know, by splitting up in this way, 
that, you know, they've, they have no unity. And then it's very easy for Cadassia to come in. Bajor is not a rich planet by any means. We're told that it has, you know, no resources, really. It's been about a year, you know, since Cardassia left. They haven't had really time to rearm themselves right. and, you know, get a real military going. Um, because let's face it, you know, they didn't have a military under, you know, Cardassian rule. You know, this, this, right. the, the, the military leader they meet might have been in his job for less than a year at this point. So, yeah. Well, I think, I think have... the Bajoran military is just the, the rebellion that, that, yeah, they, you know, they, yeah, yeah, they yeah, rounded yeah. up to a military. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, then essentially you probably have all these people who were in different rebellion group, you know, all of which had different philosophies now under the same military. So the military isn't even really, you know, unified in the way that it should be. I mean, Bajor, yeah, if Bajor is in a war with their Cardassians, they're fucked. And I mean, we haven't really, they've been very cryptic about why the Cardassians have left. Again, you know, Bajorans, you know, Kira says, I won't, you know, Kira seems to think that the Bajorans push them back. But I mean, you know, we have Maritza in Gul Darheel's persona saying, you know, we just chose to love that was a strategy. But, at you know, at the same time, I don't know how inaccurate that was. I mean, I, I, you don't think I don't think that the Cardassians left because they thought they were beat, you know, beaten back too badly. Like they left for, you know, it's implied that they're left because Bajor had nothing else for them and that they could really come in at any time once the Federation is gone. I think that's well, very clear. I think it was Gull Dukat or another Cardassian who said that that leaving Bajor was a political decision. You know, it, yeah. it, it it wasn't really a resource decision. It wasn't a decision born of necessity so much. I think that they could have stayed if they wanted to, but I think they realized that for whatever reason, if it was, you know, and, and I like that line as well because it's kind of ambiguous. We don't know yeah. if it's Cardassian politics. We don't know if it's intergalactic politics. You know, it kind of, it could be a combination of factors and it probably was. But I think that, you know, if the Federation was so ready to step in as soon as the Cardassians left, I think that part of that political decision to leave was probably predicated on the idea that the Federation was starting to pay attention to what they were doing there. Well, and, yeah, that's it. We, you know, the, Cardassia does not want war with the Federation. They know that, you know, and just as much as the Federation doesn't want war with Cardassia because they know they're going to be beaten bad, you know, and they know it, a war with the Federation is going to cost a lot of resources. And as we know, Cardassia is resource poor. They are locusts. Right. They're just trying to find. So they probably really can't afford a war. And it's, you know, you get the sense that they're holding on to Bajor because that's what they do. They're not going to give up a territory just because they've mined it to hell, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, you get the sense that, you know, they made a cost analysis and they said, you know, Federation's paying attention to us. People aren't like, you know, Bajor is, I mean, there's almost a, a, you know, you know, I almost think in a sense of like a Tibet kind of a thing where, you know, it's just this nice little religious planet, you know, why are you picking on them? You know, they, they seem like, a very like in the next generation, all our glimpses of Bajor, we felt really bad for it. It's a bit more ambiguous here, but you can tell that they definitely got that in, you know, got a lot of sympathy for their image around the galaxy. And I mean, you know, Minister Jaro even says that at the end of the episode or the second episode where he says, you know, uh, you know, we, we brought art and architecture to countless yeah. planets, you know, they go into that a little bit later on in the show's run. There's one episode in particular I'm thinking of, but you know, for the most part, we're not really 
sure exactly what that means. And frankly, it seems like the Bajorans were probably mostly peaceful and weren't really prepared for this. And and so they're kind yeah. of being thrown. They're they're kind of abused in a sense, and they're they're you know lashing out. Which is not to say that that's appropriate or inappropriate. It's just what's happening. But yeah, haven't haven't several Bajorans said like the Cardassians taught us how to be violent? You know, we. I, I, in the circle at one point, he says, you know, we, we, we don't like the Cardassian methods, but we learned a lot from them. I mean, I mean, yeah. they've made it clear that they had to learn military tactics very quickly as a society, you know, and just in a necessity mother invention thing. You know, this sense of ferociousness that we sometimes see from Bajorans maybe didn't really exist beforehand. It's possible. It, it, it's very possible. Um what, what I, I do want to talk about about Cisco and, and Kira's relationship in these two episodes, though, because I, I think it's really interesting, and I think it shows how far the show has come already. That you know, it, it's just Cisco is doggedly pursuing Kira in a way that we haven't really seen him yeah. before, and you know, he's very insistent that he's going to get Kira back, and Kira doesn't. I think Kira wants to go back. You know the. It, it, the, the 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 episodes are structured very well. I mean, the first episode ends with the shocker that Kira is being recalled to Bajor and Lee Nollis is taking over her position. The second episode, yeah. of course, is, you know, the Federation pulling out and, and Cisco kind of half evacuating the station. But, you know, Kira is kind of on the sidelines for a lot of this episode, not not in a not in a personal sense, but but in a plot sense. And Cisco shows up every once in a while and talks to her and says, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back. And she gets a smile and, you know, all that stuff. But it, it's kind of, I think it's, I don't think that they could have done this before. And I think that it's it's yeah. a mark of the show that so much of the time of these two episodes is spent on these sort of interpersonal relationships. And especially, you know, the Cisco and Kira relationship, which hasn't gotten that much play, but it does make sense, I think. Yeah, I mean, especially that, I mean, coming right off of, you know, maybe I would feel different if I waited the summer, you know, to watch this, you know, like I would have if it had been aired, but coming right off of the end of Hands of the Prophets, which does end with their relationship affirmed and her belief that the Federation is good for Beige, you know, and all of that, you know, I bought it. I think they've sold it at this point. Um, and I mean, let's, but, I mean not, I, let's not forget that, that I think Cisco is able to, I don't know if I want to use the word get away with, but but why not? I, I think that he's able to get away with everything that he's doing in these two episodes, you know, partially on the strength of the fact that he's the emissary, too. I mean, we can't forget about that. I mean, that yeah. it's kind of a nebulous concept at this point in the show. But at the same time, we know that the Bajorans do respect Cisco to a large degree. And I think Kira does, too. And that is factoring into it as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, Kira... I mean, you said she's not, Kira's not so much on the sidelines in a personal sense, but to a degree she almost is because she's not really, I mean, she has that bit where she's saying, you know, I I need to feel useful, you know, and, you know, she doesn't know where the best place for her to be is because, you know, everything, frankly, is starting, you know, she's realizing that everything is going to hell around her and, you know, she can't figure out which the best place for her, you know, where to start, really. Yeah, I yeah. I, th- well, and, I think she's lost. I think she doesn't know what to yeah, do, and I think that, frankly, uh, she doesn't uh, know what to trust. Quite understandably. Yeah, quite uh, all, on all counts, yes. And, you know, especially now that she's had this vision, which she has to have some kind of ambiguous meeting with this council and where, you know, she may or may not be, you know, 
uh, Vedic Baral's lover or something like that. Like, yeah, she, you know, what, where, where, what is she going to do? Where, where does she need to be? She still does want to be on Deep Space Nine, but maybe she does have a destiny on Bajor too. Well, and I think it's interesting because at the at the very beginning of of the circle, when Vedic Bryle shows up at Kara's quarters, I mean, she's almost and, and asks her to go to the monastery. I mean, she's almost like just grateful that she doesn't have to make a decision yeah. right now. I mean, she doesn't know where to go, and you know, she doesn't really have a clear sense of where she belongs on Bajor on a, on a peaceful Bajor. You know, yeah. not to say that Bajor is peaceful right now, but but well, that's you, you the, know, that... but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. And and so when the monastery topic comes up, she she readily goes to it because, I mean, yeah, frankly, I think that there's an attraction between her and Vedic Burial. But yeah, but I mean, she has all these people, you know, say, you know, I, I mean, that scene is hilarious. I think it's, you know, considering how funny the episode is, you know, considering how dark it gets later on. But, um, you know, she literally has every single person she knows in her quarters, you know, each with a different opinion, each essentially pulling on her arm in a different direction. And, you know, he's the only one they show it, shut up for. And, you know, his is the most clear suggestion and it's a very easy one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, so it, yeah, you're right. You know, it is almost just because, well, I, I don't know what else to do. The, yes, that, that sounds great. Monastery go. Let's do it. Yeah. 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 But I, you know, I also think it's interesting that, that Kira is very conflicted about, about leaving her friends as well. And I think it's also, that that's a very clear sign of how far she's come and how far these characters have come. That, yeah. that she does call, you know, Odo, Dax, Bashir, Quark, maybe not even Quark, Quark. <laughs> O'Brien, <laughs> her friends. I mean, you know, you know, and yeah, and it's again another moment where she's realizing that it's true as she's saying it. You know, she she, you know, she hesitates because she hasn't probably never called any of them that before. But that is how she feels about them, which is a nice warm moment. Yes, it is, and I, I, you know, I'm not. Sh- Sure that it's completely earned, but I think that it's earned enough that it's okay. I mean, there's a. It's at that point. It's the fact that there. You know, I I think she recognizes that as annoying as that moment is, she realizes the place that everyone is coming from, and I I think that it's that as much that takes her to that point. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know. Maybe she is the closest with Odo and Dax, but you know. Even Quark is giving her a drink, you know, even Quark is, you know, seeing her off. And that means something. Well, and and here we have, I mean, you know, not to change the subject, but but why not? Is that we have Quark again, you know, frankly, turning tail and leaving. I mean, he was getting ready to leave at the yeah. beginning of this of the series. And here he is again going up. Oh, I'm out of here, you know. And uh, on the one hand, that makes sense for his character. On the other hand, I think yeah. it's a little... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little on the nose, but I like it. But but of course, you know, you have Odo and you know, there's a couple of great episodes. there's a couple of great uh I think relationships that the show is developing so far. I think you have yeah. you know, Kira and Cisco and you have you have Odo and Quark as kind of the two I mean and Cisco and, and you know, Cisco and Kira as well. But and of course Kira and Dax. And Kira and, and Dax, a, yeah. Too. Their 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 relationship isn't so much focused on, but it is definitely, you know, they 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 only have very little screen time together, but they've made it clear that they spend a lot of time outside of work together. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But but what I like about that is that you know the Odo and, and Quark relationship is kind of changing and evolving, and and Odo is not above using Quark for his own ends. Yeah, and and frankly, I think that you know Quark is a character who is, you know, I don't know how you feel about Quark, but but 
he's he's becoming one of my favorite characters on this watch through just because you know he's very crafty but he's very loyal at the same time and i think that he does have a moral center that is different from perhaps a lot of the other characters on the station but he will do the right thing and he he i think he wants to do a good job which is interesting yeah i mean i guess it's you know again as you know much as odo doesn't like Quark's particular moral code, as much as he thinks that Quark can be a joke at times, he does recognize and have to respect that Quark is nothing if not consistent. You know what I mean? Like he, you know, he may be greedy and profit hungry, but he has a line and, you know, he's easy to, he's easy to do. And, you know, he's going to, he can be convinced to do the right thing and all of that, you know? And, you know, again, of everything about, Quark, he's, you can't say that he's a cruel person or, you know, he's a malicious and vengeful person. He's just a greedy person. Yeah, yeah. And he's, and he's just an id, really. He's about consumption and, you know, trying to, you know, I, I, I think Quark is trying to be moral capitalism, you know, and whether whether that can or can't exist, I mean, I feel like that's something that, you know, the entire arc of Quark may be talking about, but that is what the rules of acquisition kind of are, really. They're an ethical code for capitalism. Nah, I don't know if I'd go that far. But <laughs> I, I think that, that, you know, there's a couple of things there. I think, you know, it's interesting that, that this, this you know, storyline starts off with Odo, sorry, with Quark basically cheating his brother. I mean, you know, that scene where he's counting the latinum and, you know. And then it ends with Quark... In a very different position, having a hate crime against him. Well, yeah, but also, well, yeah. Let's not forget about that. But then I think also, yeah. and that factors into his decision as well. I think to some degree because he realized that, that was he can't really, stay on the sidelines. I mean, that wasn't an easy scene to watch. That was a very, you know, again because I think we do like Quark, and while we want, well, we like seeing the occasional bad thing happen to Quark. You know, we don't. We want to see him lose money or get his bar trashed or something like that or get really embarrassed. You know, we don't actually want to see him, you know, beaten and branded. Branded. Yeah, that's not a great look for him. But I think, you know, and that kind of feeds into his decision, of course, to help out. And by the end of the episode, he's the one who's revealing the secret place that they're keeping Kira and he's saving the day. And so, yeah, and of course, he's doing it for money or whatever. But, you know, he's still doing it because he wants to do a good job. And I think that he does have a certain sense of pride in his own work or, or, or whatever you have it, you know, where he's saying, I want to do this well, and I'm going to do this. And yeah, there's some, you know, again, there's some profit motive involved there, but at the end of the day, his yeah. character is becoming really interesting. I think. I mean, for, for Quark and this is a, you know, this is a theme that you see with a lot of people in real life who are, you know, in heavy business or banking or whatever, you know, For Quark, you know, the acquisition of wealth is a sign that he's winning or that he is doing something well. You know, if his if he's done a good job of managing his bar, he's going to have a lot of lad in him at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, I I think, you know, that's a there does there is something a little purer to his, you know, coveting of money so much, you know, and that he. I, I I don't know. It's 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 like I said. You know, he is willing to cheat people, but they're in in, in a bar with a gambling par- parlor. You know, you're coming there to get you know take you know you come in there expecting your purse to get lightened, and he does a very good job of that. At yeah, creating a really because let's face it, 
His place is popular. People like hanging out in his place. As much as you may or may not want to go there, if you're the type of person who does, he's got a very good version of it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's better than 10 forward. I, is it? I don't know. 10 forward always seemed a little, a little tame to me. I feel like if you were to drink in a bar, though, you would probably pr- appreciate 10 Forward more. I don't know. Maybe. I guess, well, there's there's two other storylines that we haven't really talked about before we kind of wrap this episode up, I think, is the continuing saga between Vedic Wynn and Vedic Burial and the, the, oh the Kai God. leadership. And, you know, Wynn is... I am... Loving Vedic Wynn. Yeah, what do you, what do you make? Is, what do you make? She's of her? a fucking snake. Like that scene where, I mean, I that scene when she's like on the bridge or whatever, and then you know she's talking to Kira and Baral, and she's just like horrible to Kira. Haven't and, haven't we met you know, before? Yeah, I know she forget you know, and and she's like stay as long as you like. Even like I want to see a spinoff that is these characters in high school because like <laughs> I want to see Vedic Win as like this cheerleader and just being a bitch to everybody. Like it was great, you know. And Barile will be, of course, like the captain of the football team. And you know, then you have you know Kaya Pak is like the twenty-five-year-old teacher who wants to make a difference. It's going to be great. Well, that, Vedic Win is an interesting <laughs> character, I think, because yeah. you can you can see why. Her order is so small because, frankly, she's an objectionable human. Well, she's an objectionable oh, yeah. Bajora, not a human being. But, but you know, on the other hand, you can kind of see how she's gotten as far as she's gotten because she's very, very wily and she knows how to play the angles. And I think that well, that's she's, it again. There are there are plenty of real life people who you know lead religious sects that are just like that. I think that which is an unfortunate thing. Well, but. yeah, but I think it's you know it's. It's interesting to a certain degree because, you know, we kind of get a sense of where her loyalties lie and her loyalties lie in herself, really. You know, I, I don't think that yeah. she – that conversation she has with with uh, Minister Jaro at the end of, of the second episode is is kind of indicative of her philosophy, I think, is that she doesn't really care. You know, she doesn't care yeah. who's governing Bajor. And in a real sense, it doesn't matter because the religion is the real thing that's holding Bajor together. And so I think she's using anybody that she can in order to we've bolster her claim for Kai. And I mean, we've seen we've seen that. You know, religion only sort of matters because she's willing to use this, you know, debate over the wormhole and, you know, the prophets and all that in, in the final episode of the first season. You know, she uses people's sincere religious, you know, feelings towards, you know, a very dark and selfish, you know, reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is she even really a believer in the prophets? Who knows? And, you know, also, I think it's it's the one thing that I think is, is weird about that scene you know, Vedic Burial is her her chief rival, and, and he's kind of the leading—I mean, he was the leading candidate for Kai, you know, a couple weeks ago. We don't, we don't know if he still is, although it, he probably is. I don't think things have changed that much uh, in the Vedic Assembly. Yeah. But it seems that that's kind of a, a, a miscalculation on, on Vedic Wynn's part to kind of sideline Kira, because it seems to me that having Kira around at the monastery would be a good thing for Wynn, because— Frankly, Kira would distract Beryl. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, also, I mean, we see this, you know, uh, um, Kira and Beryl both have see each other in their vision. And, you know, Beryl doesn't tell Kira what 
he sees, you know, in it. But we maybe we can assume that it's, you know, a similar thing. And we don't know what Veda Gwynn has seen in the orbs. She might know that, you know, Kira and uh, Boral together have some sort of destiny and she's trying to stop that. I mean, that could even be something. It's possible. I mean, she doesn't. And, you know, I also know why she would not want Kira to feel too welcome because, you know, Kira knows exactly who Vedic Wynn is. And, you know, right now, you know, if if Kira were to say in the middle of, you know, everybody, you know, what happened in that last episode, no one would believe her and they would all turn against her. And, you know, probably Vedic Wynn would find some way of getting her arrested. But... You know, the longer she stays in the monastery and meets people, she might know the people to say certain things to. And so, yeah, Vedigwin would want to get her out as soon as possible. Yeah, that could be. And I think, you know, the the implication, of course, is that that whatever game Wynn is playing, it is a long game. And, you know, we, yeah. we don't really know everything that's going on right now. So, you know, and I guess the only thing to say about that really at the end of the day is stay tuned because, of course, this isn't going to go away. Yeah, she. it's clear that she wants to be Kai, and she's going to support anyone or anything that will get her to that goal. Right now, she's with Jaro, and whatever she, you know, what, whatever he says, you know, she'll, you know, support him on, because she knows that, you know, yeah, at this point, he probably is the best choice, you know. Out of everybody who can make her be Kai, you know, he's the one who's offering, and he's the got the best shot at it, you know? If someone else comes along and gives her a better deal, she will screw him over like that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think that that's kind of an interesting character to have on this show, and I think it marks it as very different from what we've seen before. Yeah, and, you know, frankly, I mean, I hate Jarrow. He is the leader of a racist organization, and he's, you know, but... I I worry for him because, you know, Vedic Wynn is not someone you want to align with. And I don't know to what degree he knows that. I think he knows that she's a poisonous snake, but I think he thinks he can handle her. Well, I think Minister Jaro is an interesting character because in a sense, yeah. I think he's someone who thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is. Oh, yeah. And he's, you know, he, he, he talks all about, you know, I, I think the show is very clear that, yes, you know, Kira is right. The Federation is the best hope for Bajor at this point. They are the ones who are going to keep the Cardassians away long enough for Bajor to reassert itself. The Federation will let Bajor reassert itself in a way that's not going to give up what makes it, you know, and all of those things. Um, And so, yes, you know, we know that even, you know, the circle is the more, fascistic and bigoted version of uh, what is not necessarily a bad idea. I mean, I, I you can see that there is a very clear thought within Bajor that, gee, we don't you know want to trade one master for another. Like, we need to be governing ourselves, you know. Um, and you can see that, you know, which is not a bad ideology to have in and of itself – but you can see the circle as a site to which that is twisted around into, frankly, let's get this these, you know, damn federations out of here, you know, and again, branding Quark, you know, you know, beating people up. You know, Quark was not the is not the only person who has been attacked by the circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very yeah. clear. Um, well, and also, and so, you know, sadly enough, uh, Jake didn't have his little date because oh, yeah. of the Bajoran lady who her parents said could not go out with him because he was human. 
poor Jake. He, he, he went another day without uh, becoming a man. And that is the worst thing that's ever happened to Jake. <laughs> uh, um, I wonder where Nog is in all of this. I haven't seen him. I don't know. He's, I don't know what he's doing. He might be <laughs> on Ferenginar for all I know. Ferenginar, is that what it's called? That's what it's called, yeah. Huh. What did you think it was called? You know, I acted the Ferengi homeworld. Well, no, it needs a name. It's not just going to be called the Ferengi homeworld. Isn't it just called like the Klingon homeworld and like the Vulcan? And no, Vulcan. we've gone over it's this. Called Vulcan. Kronos. It's, it's called Vul- Kronos. The Vulcans come from Vulcan. So, I mean, the Ferengi can come from Ferengi. No, they come from Ferenginar. And the Klingon homeworld is called Kronos. We've gone over this before. So why are they called Cronin? I don't know. Why aren't we called Earthers? Uh, because we're called Earthlings, number one. Ah, yes. All right, well, I guess we'll find out what happens next week. Are you excited? I mean, I guess so. Okay. Well. I, I mean, it's, 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 I don't have a choice in this matter. No, you don't. Well, if you have uh, any thoughts that you would like to share on either one of these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. Please follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash trekaboutshow. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekaboutshow. And leave us a positive iTunes review. We will love you forever. Or at least until, you know, next week. When we will be doing the following episodes. Hey. The Siege and Invasive Procedures. Ew. So we'll talk to you then.